Um, so I'm Greg Mars and I'm the director of Decarbonate, which is a place-based um, decarbonisation research network. Uh, we're working with uh, local authorities, Transport for the North, universities and businesses to try and look at how we understand how to meet the challenge of decarbonisation, um, recognising that it has to happen everywhere uh, and that places are quite uh, different from each other. So it's it's not as easy uh, to decarbonise uh, uh, in different places in the same way. It won't cost the same everywhere and the pathways and the speed of transition might be quite different in different places. So that's the kind of focus of the, the decarbonate uh, network and we're organised into uh, various research themes. Um, I'm delighted that um, Professor Phil Blythe from the University of Newcastle who is the chief scientific advisor at the Department for Transport, but he's also the head of our uh, one of our research themes, uh, recently taken that role on, uh, which is looking at um, the role of um, fuels and uh, fueling um, of, of vehicles um, as part of our research network. So this webinar is part of a series of webinars where we're trying to open up the different uh, aspects of, of thinking about um, the, the the technology supply um, side of things to, to connect um, vehicles of all sorts across uh, across networks uh, and just have you know understanding uh, in particular for decarbonate uh, what the place-based questions are there but clearly this is also something where what what happens at a local level matters to what happens at regional and national level so the connectivity between national and local strategies is really really important and interesting so delighted to have Phil here uh, he's going to talk about where we are with the uh, transport uh, decarbonisation plan process. Um, he's going to talk about the, the research and innovation gaps, which um, in particular he's, he's responsible for driving forward the, the science agenda in, um, in, in the DFT uh, and, and trying to make that connection between practice and, and what needs to come next. Uh, and he's also going to give some reflections on on the current context with with COVID nineteen uh, and what that opens up and what that makes uh, more difficult, which I think is a really important discussion to have. Um, in terms of um, some some housekeeping, um, if, if you've just joined, please uh, put your name and affiliation in the uh, chat box. Um, we're going to be recording the presentation, uh, and we'll make that available on our. YouTube channel. We won't be recording the Q&A uh, part of the discussion. For the Q&A, um, please put your questions in the chat box. I'll be monitoring that. So you can put them in at any point during the uh, presentation as well as when we get to the, the, the Q&A discussion. Uh, I will probably end up clustering some of those. We'll try and get through as many of them as they can, but that will be a kind of a discussion between myself and Phil where I'm using your, your resources. So um, have that discussion and conversation. Feel free to answer each other's uh, questions in the chat box, share links. Uh, I think all that sort of stuff helps us to, to learn uh, from these kinds of webinars. Um, in the event of a fire, that's an entirely local problem to you, so um, I presume you'll, you'll sort that out. Okay, so um, I'm going to hand over at this point to Phil. I'll turn my camera and mic off and uh, we'll look forward. I think it's about 40, 45 minutes you're going to yeah. talk for, Phil. Yeah, about that. Great. See how it goes. Thanks a lot, Phil. Okay. Okay. Um, good to be here, everybody. Thank you for joining me today. Um, I'd like to talk about 
the the thinking we have in the department around the decarbonisation uh, agenda, which is which is big and really complex. And as uh, Greg says, there's a need for some thinking at the national level uh, to achieve this. But clearly, a lot of what it has to be done has to be done at the local level and playing to um, local strengths. And I think that's really really important. Um, so what I want to do is just give you a bit of context of what I do and and how myself and decarbonisation fits within the um, department, um, some of the things we're thinking about at the moment, some of the unknowns we have, and uh, finally go on and uh, have a think about um, what decarbonisation agenda looks like in the, um, in the COVID recovery world. Um, being CSA, uh, my, my role is to lead on technology, uh, science, innovation across the department and make sure the department has the best science uh, uh, advice and, and evidence uh, to make their decisions, make their, their policies, and also where they're commissioning R&D or, or other things. Um, they, they really are looking for the, the, the most appropriate and most um, leading edge uh, stuff that they can. And um, that, that's, that's really, really important to all departments at the moment, particularly in the context that um, uh, uh, there is an ambition that by 2027, 2.4% of GDP will be spent on R&D across the UK, not just from government. Uh, and at the moment, it's just under 1.7. So a long way to go, but it gives us the real opportunities. And um, science is a top of the agenda for all sorts of reasons, including the, the emergency uh, we're in at the moment. Uh, when, I, when I came into the role, one of the things I was really concerned about was the, the, the lack of any engagement and um, relationship with the main research funders, that, which were all covered within, in, uh, within UKRI. So spent a lot of time developing those relationships into very, very good functional things. And that's beginning to show some really, really good benefits for transport and for energy and for decarbonisation, which I'll come on to later. Um, these are the sort of things I do, uh, covering every area of uh, um, uh, uh, science in the department from uh, decarbonisation to big data to trying to drag the railways into the 20th century, then maybe hopefully one day into the 21st, um, space flight, and uh, more recently the whole issue around the COVID emergency and now moving towards the COVID, well, that shouldn't say research and recovery, that should say restart and recovery um, uh, phases. And I think I'd like to end this presentation by talking about some of my thoughts around that and some of the challenges we have. And, and one of the things that's really, really important is, is trying to join up across transport. Because if you look at the Department for Transport and you look at how a lot of transport is organised in the country, it's organised by mode. And as we know, for decarbonisation, we need to make sure that things are joined up better. So we're joining up the modes. We're, we're, the, 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 the term I use to the ministers is desilification. It's quite gratifying that although it's a horrible word, they're starting to use it themselves as well. Because um, if we don't join up across transport, we don't understand the, the flows of people and goods across modes and the reasons people travel, uh, we can't influence that and make sure they're more likely to use more sustainable modes of travel if indeed um, they still need to travel. And I think that's a really, really important part of what we do. So we have a, we have a data strategy team in the department looking at how the digital connectivity and 
and the data across transport can be joined up better. And you, you'll probably see from the five o'clock briefings given by ministers on COVID that the first slide they always use is a slide bringing together info we, 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 we gather on all the transport modes and, and their, their usage at this point in time. And that's hugely useful in that context in understanding uh, the levels of social distancing, the levels of travel and, and therefore the risk of, um, uh, of people passing on the virus. Um, so um, that, that whole data and uh, digital connectivity to join up transport is really important and really, really important for decarbonisation. Just before the lockdown, we had a Science Advisory Council deep dive on the opportunities for um, uh, uh, demand management in the 21st century using, using new technologies and techniques and new understanding as a key part of decarbonisation. Because one thing that's really important for the department to understand is it's not just technical solutions. There's social, behavioural, getting people to do things differently, you know, re redesigning how we do a lot of what we do in society and as an individual uh, to really achieve the, 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 the fundamental uh, changes we need to reach a net zero um, in, in transport and, and, and in the UK by 2050. Um, but there's a lot of technology out there, uh, some very much um, supporting uh, the um, decarbonisation agenda, others yet to support it, but moving that way. And we'll come on to some of that uh, later. Um, but but the, the technology is, is, is really important in, in considering what we can do for decarbonisation, um, understanding what new modes are coming, how that changes how we move goods, how we move people, how automation, what role that may play in, um, in, in, in decarbonisation, because a lot of the automated vehicles are most likely uh, to be electric anyway. Um, Shared mobility, um, trying to understand the, the opportunity for that in getting people to move away from owning cars and move to more shared modes. That's going to be a real challenge um, in our COVID recovery world because we've been telling people for three months now to uh, avoid contact, um, social distance two meters, don't use public transport. Um, and eventually we want people to move away from that and use public transport. So I think there's a big challenge there. Um, the... Get, getting the timing right for all this is really, really important. And, and I think with the, the public mood um, over the last few years for um, decarbonisation and, and the concerns about climate change, now's the time to move quickly. And um, certainly within government, um, you know, a, a, along with the COVID recovery, restart and recovery, uh, decarbonisation, moving to net zero uh, and um, the levelling up agenda are the, are the key things that uh, are focusing government's mind now and uh, in, in, in the future. So there's a real opportunity for us. Um, to, to help with um, uh, the department uh, using better, uh, using science better, using R&D better, uh, we've developed a science plan for the department which really coordinates all the R&D across the department, it has to be signed off, has to be coordinated and a lot of that R&D that's coming up is in the decarbonisation space in one way or another and I'll come on to uh, some of that later. But all uh, there was a review by Go Science and um, the Treasury last year which was looking at uh, science capability review for government and one of the things there was you know let's let's make sure every department has a a science plan has a science system in place so it becomes more prominent in the department to engage with all the policy teams provide them with the resources and the support they need so we really are using the the leading edge science the leading edge science um evidence and and supporting an R&D ecosystem to meet our objectives. And that's beginning to work really, really well. And, and you'll see that pay dividends over the next um, couple of years. Within the department, um, 
we we have sort of five key enablers of what the, the of, of what the department's about, what the department's going to deliver. The first three, going left to right, are are key um, sort of policy areas like um, making transport better for the user, um, the decarbonisation of transport, and levelling up the economy. Uh, and then the other two are more the sort of um, how do we make the, the uh, how do we make the department better? How do we how do we make sure that the department is the best department in Whitehall and delivering well both nationally and internationally? So that's increasing global impact and um, ex uh, and making us an excellent department. And uh, underneath that, it's underpinned by the science, the evaluation, the behaviour, data, the data, the um, the um, security resilience, and all all the other things that 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 are sort of horizontal cross cutting things um, in in the department. So that, that's the sort of environment we're working in. And, um, you know, there's a real ambition that um, we will have a, a green green restart to um, the economy uh, post-COVID, post well, not post-COVID, but uh, in recovering COVID. So that decarbonisation, the use of green tech and green recovery, moving towards net, net zero is a key part of what we need to do. And the reason it's so important in transport, as, as you all know, that um, where most of the modes, um, most, most of the sectors of, uh, of, of, of society have decarbonized quite well, um, transport's the one that it's been very, very hard to do so. And that's not because vehicles haven't become uh, less they're using more carbon in some cases they are with the SUVs and the like but it's really because there's a lot more transport than there was in 20 um, in, in 1990 as well so we, we've got we've got probably the biggest challenge uh, within government we've got about 33 percent of the um, uh, green domestic greenhouse gas comes from uh, comes from transport and the majority of that comes from road transport that doesn't include international aviation that doesn't include international shipping although that now is being brought into the calculations uh, based on the recommendations of the uh, committee for climate change um, we've produced a whole range of um, publications on uh, decarbonization for different areas so we've we've got the maritime 2050 uh, we've got the the last mile we've got uh, the role that uh, future mobility plays in decarbonization we've got the road to zero for electric vehicles and and um, th there's there's an awful lot going on in in that sector and we've now formed a carbon board in the department to coordinate all that internally to make sure that we're we're, we're, we're joined up and, and using the same measures to go forward and we also have the other key departments in that um, impact on, um, on on the decisions we make and that in particular bays from both the industrial strategy but also from um, the energy they, they, they control the energy system and therefore if we make decisions on changing um, the energy vectors we're going to use within transport to decarbonize them we've got to make sure that that can indeed be uh, be achieved achieved with, uh, um, with the, the, the energy in the quantities we need being available, being green and, and being where we need it. And that's a challenge, which again, I'll touch on a little bit later. Um, we produced, um, uh, we announced that we had a plan to produce a decarbonisation plan in October of last year. And that really just set up a very broad roadmap of what we wanted to do, but really galvanise government and the arm's length bodies to move forward. And that was followed in March of this year 
by the decarbonizing transport and this was really setting the challenge um, this is quite a detailed document yeah, yeah still at quite a high level but saying all the things we need to do and what was really important and really quite significant you know science and and, and the engagement UKRI and academia and research was was mentioned very strongly in there showing that you know we don't know all the answers to this we need to make sure that we work with our academic partners like Decarbonate and the like um, to help us uh, deliver on this. It also recognised, I think this is really, really important, and Greg touched on this at the beginning in, in terms of the, the role of Decarbonate as well. It's looking at place-based solutions. Um, we know some stuff has to be national, but you know, you've got to play to play to regional strengths as well. And I think I think that's really, really important. And you'll see, you'll hear that term used more and more and more both in terms of uh, decarbonisation, but also in terms of that um, that levelling up agenda as well. Um, so in setting the challenge, uh, we're looking at place-based solutions, we're looking at accelerating modal shift to public inactive transport. Um, one has gone very well in the uh, COVID emergency, that, that move towards active transport. The other is going to be more challenging coming out of the COVID emergency into recovery. Um, uh, we, we clearly recognise we need to decarbonise road vehicles. There is also a recognition that we need to reduce the number of road vehicles emitting. And so that there's a challenge around that as well. And again, part of the post-COVID recovery, seeing what can good practice can be locked in uh, that we've been using for three months now to communicate with each other and have these sort of meetings uh, using remote comms more. Um, Decarbonizing of goods is is really significant as well, and uh, you know a lot of people have questioned why are there still quite a lot of flights uh, coming into the UK during uh, the COVID crisis. Some are carrying passengers, but the majority are, are still flying because a lot of high value and perishable for, um, goods uh, still come by aviation. So there's a challenge to address there as well. Um, the the decarbonisation plan, when it was launched in March, um, got got some really good press. You know, it was seen as a proper visionary document. Even our colleagues from other government departments, particularly Bay, said, "Wow, um, that that is pretty awesome. That really um, helps us understand the challenge we have for energy, the challenge we have for the industrial strategy, and the like." So, I think we're all moving in the right direction. Although I would I would say there's an awful long way to go, and and the scale of the challenge is massive when you think about the. Um, what we're trying to achieve with our different carbon budgets. Um, we've, we've got a long way to go with CB4 uh, and 5. And it, it can't be just small incremental changes. Certain fundamental decisions have to be made about how uh, different sectors are going to decarbonize, how we're going to do other things to take carbon out of the air and out of the environment in different ways. Uh, and um, that, that's, that's a real challenge. But let, let's actually have a think about that from the transport side. And, and I, I keep on mentioning bays and energy. And it, it's critically important because um, the scale of the challenge, if we're transiting from um, using uh, fossil fuels into other, other means of uh, powering our transport networks, um, that's going to have a fundamental change on how, how we do energy as well. If you look at this diagram, it's, 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 it's produced by uh, Grant Wilson at Birmingham. It's hugely helpful. I, I, he sent me an updated version, but I just couldn't find it. So this one only goes to 2017. But basically, the blue line uh, that, that's quite cyclic is the use of gas um, on an annual basis. As you see, it peaks in the winter and reduces in the summer because it's used for heating a lot, obviously. The red line is the demand for electricity um, 
over the year and it, very mildly cyclic yeah there's a slightly less demand in the summer because uh, we're a country that doesn't need so much um, air conditioning as others uh, and a slight increase in the winter but if you then look at the gray line which is the, the step line that's the amount of transport fuel that's used in the country at the moment so that's aviation fuel diesel petrol etc um, and if you think that uh, if we're going to decarbonize and get away from using um, those sort of fuels all, all, all that energy there um, topping above 15 um, uh, 1500 gigawatt hours um, has to has to become electricity or some other mechanism uh, for use so a massive scale change in in what's needed and clearly um, the challenge to do that through renewables is, is massive it's happening but but there's a long way to go so got to think about the energy system and not just about what we use to power the vehicles and what we do to change how people travel and indeed when they travel so much um, and this is critical to trying to get the balance between the two I, I can't emphasize that enough so part of what we're doing at the moment as part of this um, uh, uh, delivering on the transport decarbonization plan is a lot of stakeholder engagement that will be happening. They're setting up a net zero transport council uh, to oversee that. It'll have the great and the good on um, to really be an external um, challenge uh, to us. And I think that's really, really important. There's also a net zero innovation board, which until last week had been called the Energy Innovation Board, which is trying to, uh, 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 trying to coordinate all the energy thinking across government to make sure we understand what sectors are looking at um, uh, different different fuels and, and how much demand there's going to be on the actual energy networks themselves, you know, what sectors are going to use hydrogen, what sectors might want to use synthetic fuels, and, and what, what does all that mean? And um, the research councils in UKRI are very much engaged with that to work out where their new programs need to be to, to again, support that whole agenda. Uh, within within transport, we, we do a lot of this through the Transport Research and Innovation Board. This is one of the structures I set up when I came in as CSA a few years ago, and it really brings together most of the um, arm's length bodies and key transport providers in, in the UK across the modes, along with the research funders such as Innovate UK, ESRC, EPSRC, and, and also UKRI separately. And, and feeding into that is um, the Transport Decarbonisation Plan, which I've mentioned, the DFT Science Plan, which I, I introduced you to before, and also the, the, the actual priorities from the different bodies. So what are the priorities for HS2, for Network Rail, for Highways England, the Aerospace Technology Institute for ADEP, which is the grouping of um, directors of uh, environment and transport in local authorities. They're all parts of um, TRIB um, to make sure that... Uh, we're capturing everything that we think forms part of the um, decarbonisation challenge. In parallel with that, we've been funding some work on a decarbonisation roadmap, R&D roadmap, uh, which uh, MOTS has been doing for us, and I'll tell you a little bit about that later. And coming out of that is uh, trying to identify where there are there are knowledge gaps and research gaps, so we can discuss with research uh, funders and, and with the bodies there who also have research money in many cases um, to, uh, to, to fund research in those areas. Um, and yeah, that helped influence a couple of years ago the, the whole Network Plus uh, that, that Decarbonate is part of. And we're looking at a, a key program with UKRI and DFT joint program on decarbonisation, which uh, is, is almost over and ready and, and ready to be considered for funding and, and um, feeding into other structures um, like the infrastructure group in TRIB that's looking at decarbonising infrastructure, which is often forgotten, but is a major part of the, the carbon um, budget in the UK. And, and we're pretty good at coming up with materials that can replace um, the carbon intensive concrete and, uh, and steel, etc. But 
um, needs more coordination and and the net zero innovation board which I mentioned, mentioned earlier which is coordinating um, decarbonization across across the energy sector and that's led out of base I mentioned this roadmap this this will form part of what is published um, uh, later this year on uh, decarbonization uh, when we come up with the full plan and, and what the roadmap's done is looked at different energy vectors and what what decisions have to be made at different points in time to make sure that um, uh, government and particularly DFT in the transport sector can deliver on that so the roadmaps on the left-hand side look really, really complicated. But basically they've got little decision points in there where if we don't make a decision on this or that or the other, we may be up behind the curve and delivering on decarbonization. And the key things we're looking at are hydrogen and its variants. So either hydrogen direct or in, in fuel such as uh, liquids such as ethanol or ammonia, uh, battery electric solutions, which is a key part of it, a uh, route electrification, uh, maybe looking at catenaries or inductive charging under the, under the road for example and and then other fuels um, biofuels and synthetic fuels and what role they will play and so that's going to be published this summer there's been a couple of uh, uh, meetings on that recently and I know a number of people on the call have attended those um, and then we try to map this how this fits into the energy innovation board which is now the net zero board so they have a whole raft of technologies they're looking at including carbon capture and storage which I think is very very important uh, particularly if hydrogen is going to be produced through steam methane reforming um, looking at bioenergy and the, and, and uh, greenhouse gas direct removal of greenhouse gases and and also SMRs looking at uh, small modular reactors um, that could potentially uh, create green electricity and as a um, as a side uh, impact of that um, generate hydrogen as well so hydrogen transport demand is, is part of that crossover to what Bayes is thinking sustainable fuels for jets um, to try and move uh, the aviation industry towards net, near to net zero and batteries charging autonomy and that whole future of transport side and all those things there will be covered within the um, uh, the UK uh, RI DFT decarbonization program which will emerge over the summer as well um, this has highlighted a, an issue which I think is important and that is the, the modal opportunities for hydrogen. Hydrogen's really been on the back burner for a, a long time. We, we've looked at hydrogen in transport on a number of occasions but we've always looked at it in isolation. So the, the economic cost and the, the carbon budgets have, have tended not to stack up. But now we're seeing that other sectors are really keen on um, on hydrogen, you know, for 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 high intensity uh, manufacturing that needs uh, needs heat, such as steel making, uh, possibly the decarbonisation of homes, where you pump hydrogen into the homes rather than uh, natural gas, and so the the whole the whole basis of what hydrogen could be available has has really really changed, and although it's still a marmite topic within the department, where some people are very much feel that it's 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 a technology too far, and we can do most things with electrification alone um, I, I actually believe we need to we need to really investigate hydrogen more and do that very quickly I think some heavy goods vehicles particularly buses and HGVs uh, may benefit from hydrogen if the battery use cycle doesn't enable them to do what they want and also bear in mind you're sticking several tons of batteries onto an HGV to run it on electric um, is that an efficient way of doing it both in terms of the dead weight you're carrying around and if if we have limited stocks of lithium uh, lithium and cobalt for batteries would they much be better off focused on smaller modes such as cars and vans because um, that's where um, 
that's where batteries clearly clearly deliver well. So um, there's no decisions made, but but we are beginning to look at this much more seriously. Um, obviously, there's some demonstrations of rail with hydrogen. Um, there's an opportunity to explore where where other um, hydrogen rail projects could potentially happen. Uh, and Network Rail is currently doing a study on looking at uh, the opportunities for propulsion on all the non-electrified rail lines in the UK. So should those lines be electrified should they could they run on hydrogen could they run on only battery could they run on some hybrid solution and what on earth do we do about freight which needs really high torque uh, energy which very difficult to replace diesel at the moment so big challenges there um in maritime it's clearer i think um i think the UK Maritime have decided that hydrogen, either directly or through ammonia, is probably the way forward. Um, and what I'd like to see, uh, but again, this is not policy at the moment, I'd love to see some hydrogen hubs appear, which show multimodal um, transport provision where you may be powering some hydrogen lorries and buses as well as uh, trains and uh, maritime at ports. And I, I think if if that could show that we can make hydrogen work that would be great the big challenge is we don't know what the cost of hydrogen will be at scale we we need to be sure that it is actually uh green um so being used uh, converted from electric green electricity through electrolysis we know electrolysis is very expensive at the moment and the efficiency is very good my, my my challenge to research and my challenge to the industry is can you tell me that if we had to have a lot of hydrogen so you, you start innovating and delivering for the market what what will be the cost reductions um what will be the the scale that can be achieved and and can we keep it green um obviously one of the other key areas of uh of decarbonization is electrification uh of of many of the modes um and that obviously requires a leap of faith that in the longer term we will have uh, we will have a lot of green electricity, and I think that's beginning to happen. Um, so that's good. Uh, we also recognise that electrification doesn't just um, help with uh, decarbonisation and dealing with uh, uh, negatives for climate change, but it also provides a much better environment because it also reduces um, uh, poor air quality and 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 noise as well. So lots of opportunities there. Lots of funding has been done through OLEV, Office of Low Emission Vehicles, which is a joint um, a joint organisation between Bays, which looks at the industrial opportunities of of electric uh, vehicles, and DFT, that's looking at you know what are the challenges of getting an electric uh, um, transport economy on the roads and um that they, they've been they've had some great successes but they've now got a real challenge to move forward if we're trying to uh, really um get most new vehicles uh ultra low emission which probably means electric uh, for small vehicles at least um by by tw uh, those purchased by 2035 uh, to be electric uh, and um so there's a massive uh, piece of work to do there and this is why i think we need to also look at other alternatives of which hydrogen uh, and and uh, biosynthetic fuels may well be may well form part of the mix for some of the other other vehicles um we've got to make sure there's an adequate supply clearly Coming out of COVID, I think a number of car manufacturers would love to go back to type and just produce volumes and volumes of diesel cars to sell. Um, whereas I think the opportunity must be, let, let's try and accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles.
Uh, we've got to make sure that consumers understand electric vehicles. Many people have never been in one. Many people still have a perception that they're, they're not as performant as other vehicles. Many people worry about the range of electric vehicles, rightly so, but that, that is beginning to change. And also you find once people use an electric vehicle, they, they understand how to use it and that range anxiety for many of them go away, not completely as of yet. And obviously we need an infrastructure fit for purposes. And this is where one of the real challenges is because it's almost a chicken and egg situation. You need the infrastructure in there to give people the confidence to buy the electric vehicles, even though at the moment there aren't that many people with electric vehicles. Therefore, the infrastructure doesn't stack up in many cases from a business case. So it's a real challenge. And, and this is where government have to step in, where the market's not quite there yet to make sure that the supply is there. And, and also, I think really importantly, working out strategically where electric vehicle charging should take place you know in in the original funding of infrastructure for example the plugged in places funding uh, eight or nine years ago the 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 charging um the charging post were put in almost anywhere where local authorities and others would would yeah, had a space uh, rather than in strategic locations where they'd really get well used and i think we need to make sure that's um that's that's addressed and certainly indeed it is uh, and the secondly is um what sort of electric vehicle charging? We've got um, slow charges, which are three or seven kilowatt hour, um, the sort of thing that you, you you saw in the first generation of charges and the sort of thing you would have at home. And then you've got these rapid charges um, at 30 kilo, uh, 30, uh, 30K, 50K, and even over 100K now, which can recharge a, an electric vehicle up to about 80% of the battery from empty in less than half an hour. And it's understanding what mix is required, how people will use them, and, and how much willing people are willing to pay for them. And also, if you put a lot of electric vehicle charging at home, which seems logical if you're parking your car at home overnight, what, what impact does that have on the local network? Does that need reinforcing? And there's a massive cost associated with that. Or even if everybody is charging at night, the, the big questions are, do we need to do some demand management to influence people to charge at different times? They're not all trying to take electricity at the same time. Lots of investment has, has gone into this um, and will continue to do so. Uh, it is seen as a, one of the key pillars of, of, of the transport decarbonisation policy. It's also seen as one of the key pillars of the industrial society. Um, we funded big uh, industrial strategy challenge fund projects like DER, Driving the Electric Revolution. So the, um, the power electronics and the electric drives that are needed for electric vehicles, uh, the research and the, and the, the uh, production of those can be done in the UK and we funded things like the, the Faraday Centre to look at next generation um, battery technology uh, and also um, looking towards building a gigafactory for batteries in the UK so the UK has a real stake in electromobility and I think the whole consideration uh, at the moment uh, that you know uh, in terms of what we saw during the COVID crisis and certain certain components and, and raw materials not becoming available is that there is a real appetite to try and onshore uh, some of this and make sure the UK has more more capability in this area. So things like Durr and Faraday that started before then were, were really, you know, they were really ahead of uh, ahead of thinking and credit to to base what they've done there. Okay. Um so they're the sort of things we're thinking about. I just want to throw a couple of other things in. Um, we, we, we're moving out the emergency phase with COVID now into what, what, what's known as restart and recovery. Um, and for transport, that's, that's a real challenge because we're, um, we're trying to run transport services um, with social distancing, which means in public transport, you can probably only um, 
deliver 20, 20, 25% of the capacity you did before. But what that means also, because um, it's hit aviation, maritime and road freight hard, um, is I, I suspect those industries are going to have less money and less appetite um, to uh, decarbonize um, because they, 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 they've, um, the, the economics have changed. So I think it's really, really important that uh, as researchers and innovators, we, we look at innovative solutions to, to help those sectors uh, move forward. Um, they all want to, but but there's an economic reality which is really impacted on them. So there's some challenges there, and governments looking at what what we need to do to to work with these industries to to move forward. Um, there's a real concern, at least in the short term, that car use will increase. Uh, we've been telling people for three months not to not to, to social distance, uh, not to go in big groups of people you don't know. Uh, and um, more recently, try and avoid public transport if you can, because the capacity it can deliver is, is low. So I think we're going to see in the short term an increase in the use of personal vehicles for going to work and doing other things. We've got to look at um, what do we do in the long term to bring people back to more sustainable uh, forms of transport. Is there an opportunity, whilst not a lot of people are using public transport, to really think about re, um, re, redesigning, rebranding, re, um, uh, you know, reconsidering the whole transport, uh, the public transport offer, uh, so it, it is really a much better decarbonised offer and also delivering up on the levelling economy when it does come back. Um, is this a real opportunity also to bring in uh, more battery electric buses, hydrogen buses, uh, and, and, and really encourage the decarbonisation of, of the modes? And if we don't do that, bear in mind, people are still buying diesel trains at this point in time. Those trains are going to be an asset being used for 30, 40 years. Um, same with buses, 15, 20 years, same with HGVs. So the sooner we can push this agenda, the better. What has been really, really encouraging during the COVID uh, crisis is the increase in cycling and the increase in walking. And again, the challenge is we've got to try and lock down that good practice and keep it. Uh, really, really encouraged that many cities have, have shut a number of roads and, and opened them up to cycling and walking so people can stay social distance while doing that. There's health benefits, there's um, emission benefits, air quality benefits around that. We need to try and lock that in. And obviously also, because there haven't been that many cars around, the air quality has significantly improved in, in many cities. And I think citizens have recognised that, politicians have recognised that. And what, what can we do to try and keep that uh, and, and, and try and lock that in? Are there changes could be made um, potentially to the clean air zones um, to, to readjust what they can do, what they're allowed to do based on this post-COVID world, or sorry, COVID recovery world. I'm not that optimistic about post-COVID at this point in time. Um, and um, obviously we're all, we're all working remotely. How can some of that good practice be locked in? So the demand for travel, particularly at the peak, particularly heading into cities, is reduced to some extent. We don't want it to stop because it will kill cities if no one's in the offices at all. But we could certainly see um, a, a significant reduction. I imagine there's a lot of you on the call, particularly academics, who go away to lots of meaningless conferences around around the world. And you're probably thinking, I'm not really missing those. I, I, I miss some of the mates that I meet there and discussion. but did I really need to go to um, several of those a year in far-flung parts of the world by air to talk about decarbonisation? Um, yeah, there's got to be a rethink. 
Um, and, and just to say, you know, um, decarbonisation is a big part of what we're doing along with recovery, but we're, we're thinking about lots of other stuff as well. We're looking at aviation and the unique challenges there, uh, particularly things like electric aviation. We're looking at new forms of propulsion. We're looking at trying to make our... Um, our, our infrastructure smarter uh, so we have a, a whole future st stream operating in the department as well which is always looking at it from a decarb and a, a covid recovery lens and the scenario has been produced about you know if if covid goes like this or goes like that or whatever um what what could transport look like in 6 24 and and months and 15 years <coughs> excuse me and it's really important to to think about that and prepare and and although scenarios are, are just plausible potential futures they're not the future it helps us really really challenge ourselves to make sure that we're thinking in the right way and we need that engagement with academia to do that we certainly don't know everything we need to know ourselves um, still considering uh new transport modes and i think although i didn't put it on here because I, I i think Micromobility is really going to come to the fore. It's, it's, it seems to be very popular uh, within within government as a way of enabling people to move a bit further than they could with with walking. So uh, looking at um, opportunities and regulations for electric scooters, which at this point in time are not technically legal to use on the road or the paths, and, and also um, big support for electric bikes to give people the opportunity to travel out a little bit further. These are healthy or semi-healthy options at least and uh, I think we need to look at how we how we incorporate that more into the DNA of our city planning and our, our transport offerings and um, that's that's a sort of um, an overview of some of the things we're thinking. The challenges are big they're not just transport they really are the energy system but it's also trying to consider what sort of society we want uh, to, so we can deliver on decarbonisation and net zero. It will mean, you know, doing things differently to some extent, but we've been doing things differently for the last three months and humans and businesses are incredibly adaptive and we've just got to decide what, what adaptations do we want to consider uh, and encourage and nudge people to do. And uh, I'll finish there. Thank you. <laughs>